0: For 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I'm your host, Nick Bilton. Uh, I have a very exciting guest today. Jordan, do you want to introduce yourself? I'm Jordan Brown. I
1: live here in LA. Um, I'm a political consultant, and I work with folks in
0: the entertainment industry and... Politics. And, and political people from D.C. So every time there's like a, someone visiting um, from, uh, from D.C. who's kind of on the presidential circuit over the last year, uh, Jordan has been involved in that in some way. Uh, and so every time I see him, I always like, well, what's going on? What's the gossip? What's this? What's that? And the other. And here we are nine days away. It feels like it's been 35 years since this whole thing started. But nine days away from the Iowa caucus. What's going to happen? Well, I think there are two routes. Number 1 is, you know, each of
1: the top 4 candidates wins one of the early states and then it's a mess. Wait, wait. So
0: the top 4 candidates being,
1: being Biden, um Sanders, Warren, and and Pete Buttigieg. I think, you know, Amy Klobuchar has sort of surged recently, so
0: you maybe maybe call it a top 5. So the one of so they all win, so one of so is there, there's a world where one of each of them wins like a different state and sure. then it's a complete mess. Yeah, like let's say Pete wins in Iowa. There's a ton
1: of on-the-ground enthusiasm for him. The candidates are essentially bunched up in polling there. Iowa is notoriously hard to really predict. Caucuses are weird in and of themselves. I mean, you have people standing in a high school gymnasium, They're and real- it can
0: change in in the moment,
1: right? Yeah. When you're at these caucuses. Yeah, you have to get at least fifteen percent of of the crowd in each you know little spot where they caucus to be viable. And if you're if somebody's turning up for you know, Marianne Williamson or something, the, and they have to go to another corner uh,
0: until everyone's at fifteen percent. So it's it's a very strange way of voting. So is in the polls when they're like looking at like who they project to win in this caucus, are they taking into account like okay, well if Sanders doesn't get enough, they're going to go to this side, or or the Sanders people are just going to walk out of the building? Well, like-
1: they do ask who people's second choices are, but no, there's no real way to game that out. So. Look, it's it's a weird system. So, look, another way that this could turn out is Biden wins handily in Iowa. Maybe he still loses New Hampshire, but maybe he wins Nevada and South Carolina, and then all of a sudden it looks like you know Biden's the nominee, and on Super Tuesday he wraps it up. But if that doesn't happen, and if you have you know Pete winning Iowa, Warren winning um, New Hampshire, and then Sanders uh, in Nevada, another caucus state where labor is really strong, and you've got the you know the casino unions and all that, and then you have Biden blow everyone out in South Carolina, then it's, you know, anything could happen. Bloomberg could suddenly do really well. Um, You could have uh, candidates. It's sort of like, I don't know if you remember the last two competitive primaries. It took a long time for Obama to really... To get a majority of the delegates, right? But everyone kept talking about he had an insurmountable lead, and and last time too, uh, it, it took up until June, the, the night before the California primary, was when the AP called it for for Hillary. So it, it took a long time. So, but you could have a scenario this time where, you know, maybe someone's ahead in the delegate count, but there's no way to get a majority of delegates, and that's when you
0: hear everyone talking about a contested convention and one of the things i found really fascinated fascinating like over the last week specifically so you have the new york times endorsement that comes out and you know i read it and i was like okay well that's kind of i didn't think they would pick two i actually did think they would pick two i didn't think they would pick those two um but i but then you had this uproar on twitter like you know and who cares about twitter i know but like at the same time it is kind of emblematic of a certain portion of the country and i was like holy shit like I remember when this was all going on with you know Trump, and at the end of the day, they all got behind Trump. They may have hated him, they may have you know, they may not like what the direction of the party, or maybe they did. I don't know. But what seems so nerve wracking to me is that that's not going to happen on our side of the street. What do you think is there a world where this like turns into total chaos and we hurt ourselves as a result of it? Absolutely.
1: What. For, to go on endorsements first, I think we're long past the time when endorsements matter. I think that you know influential regional papers, when people would sit over their breakfast table and read the paper and talk, you know, that's when endorsements mattered, right? And and they were seeing the editorial board was, you know, trying to help people be informed and, and make a choice. We're in a world now where you either have extremely high information voters, people who are obsessed. And these are the people who are tweeting and reading polls like us. And endorsements don't matter, right? We've made up our minds or, you know, the New York Times editorial board isn't going to tell us. And then you have voters who are tuning in for snippets, right? And they, I, uh, neither do they, I think, make their decision based on the New York Times editorial board. Um, So I take it a little bit with a grain of salt. I think it was a a really dumb decision by the New York Times editorial board. Um, It just, you know, what is picking two candidates whose ideological views are, are so separated? And I know they tried to rationalize this, but it didn't make sense to me. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. We could end up in chaos. I think f- for me, the, the single biggest regret I think we should have about this primary system that we have as a party is that two states with almost universally white populations go first. I don't think we'll ever have it again. I think. What do you mean you don't think we'll ever have it again? I think we'll change it. I think this will be the last time we'll have the Iowa caucus go first and and New Hampshire. You just can't, we lean so heavily on people of color and the Democratic Party to get our candidates across the finish line time and time again. And to ask, you know, states with significant percentages of black and Latino populations to go third and fourth isn't fair. And it's not right. And, And I think there's a lot of frustration
0: bubbling up. Um, about that in particular the one thing i've been really kind of i found very difficult to understand is you know we came out of 2015 uh, knowing that trump had won it was a shock um I, i think i'm just starting to get to the point where it's still i i feel sick as i say these words but where i can like look at the words president trump and be like oh yeah that's the guy that's president for so long I would see those words or write those words or hear those words and it would be surreal. Like, oh, this is just a bad dream. We're all going to wake up from it. And I and and now I'm just kind of at the point where it's like, okay, this registers th- this crazy shit that we're in right now. But, but coming out of 2015 and into 2016, knowing what we were going to be up against in four years, how is it that the Democratic Party finds themselves in a situation that they do today where no one can agree – We're doing the same things we did last time with Iowa and New Hampshire going first. We're, we're doing all these things that you would imagine someone would have stood up and said, this is not, we did it wrong last time. This is how we're going to do it. So first off,
1: I think we don't have the stomach for it, right? We, we kind of say that, uh, we're going to listen to the base and where the Republicans just say like, we care about winning. We care about tax cuts and Supreme court justices, um, and I, th- I think that that's why,
0: you know, we keep losing. It's because we have too many different ideologies, and that the Republicans are like, eh, I could put my ideology aside as long as I get rid of abortion or this, that, or the other, and we win. Absolutely. So, do you think that that the once we get, and this has been my big worry, is once we get to the point where someone rises above everyone you know, there's a bunch of upset people, you know, is it, is there a fear in the democratic party that people that some people won't vote like the, the Bernie bros will be yeah. like, I'm not voting for, sure. for Warren cause it's not Bernie or something like that.
1: Yeah. And, and the other thing I was going to say to your last question that relates to this as well is that they've got sort of this virtuous cycle, you know, in air quotes that they have created that we do not have. Right. So they've got, Hannity on TV. They've got Drudge on the internet. They've got Limbaugh on radio. They've got the Heritage Foundation and the Hoover Institution. They've got the evangelical movement, and they've now got a sophisticated digital operation with not only analytics but predictive and AI. Like they're absolutely eating our lunch, and these things all talk to each other, and. We it's not that we're doing nothing or that we haven't learned. There are some really smart, great people, right? And there are some really great Democratic donors who are investing and in getting our digital operation up and running again, and uh, and trying to play catch up and you know messaging that's going to resonate with voters in the states that we need to win. So it's not that we're doing nothing, but we just don't have that. And but is that is there? Can we ever have that? Yeah, I think. We can. I just think that, you know, and and it's not, this is not unique to America. I just think that it often um, political movements that are conservative are, are more cohesive. And, and so on our side, yes, there is a real fear that people, if their candidate doesn't win, especially uh, Sanders supporters, that they that they don't go to the polls. I mean, there's also a ton of misinformation. Uh, so I was I was recently somewhere talking to a 22 year old whose first vote was for Bernie Sanders, who tried to convince me that, and he firmly believed that Sanders had had more delegates than Hillary, and that the nomination was stolen from him at the convention. And there are there are still hurt feelings about the DNC, you know, for four years ago, and it just to show you how different we are from the other side, like the RNC declared all-out war on Trump, right? They did everything they could, and it was nakedly, openly, unabashedly, we cannot have it be this guy. And then it was him, and then he owned the RNC, and and they all got behind him. I mean, Donna Brazile leaked a question to the Hillary campaign. Did that do anything to help Hillary? No. Did everyone in that building probably want Hillary? Sure, but it's a political party. It's a political organization, and I think you know, there was so much guilt about that afterwards. And, you know, Tom Perez inheriting the DNC and saying, we're going to get rid of superdelegates and, and clean this all up. But the job of the party is to put forward the candidate that it thinks can win in a general
0: election. From a digital perspective, uh, the thing that uh, I keep thinking about is, um, on the one hand, you've got Brad Parscale, who's who's just a you know, he was a web designer sitting around in his underwear, like making web banners. And all of a sudden, he's now running this campaign. But you know, there have been people I've spoken to at the um, uh, at both Twitter and at Facebook, who worked with both political parties. And I don't mean to keep ragging on the Democrats, but this will be my last moment point of it. But and I I heard from someone very high up at Twitter that was like we tried to work with some of the like with the, the Hillary folks and other folks and it was like really really difficult because they had this ideology and at Facebook you had Boz the guy who you know has been quite vociferous about a lot of things related to Facebook in the in the news lately who said that like that tr- he didn't vote for Trump and he won't vote for Trump but he they ran the best damn uh, digital campaign he's ever seen and I wonder if what your thoughts are about, the digital campaigns going forward with the Democrats, and also, do you think that the, you know you have a lot of Democratic candidates, Warren specifically, uh, and I think everyone believes this, but Warren has been has been quite loud about it. Um, that Facebook and all these companies need to be broken up. Is there any worry that like even if we could get our shit together to kind of have a better campaign, that Facebook and those guys don't necessarily want the Democrats to be so successful? I don't know if I would go that
1: far. I think that tech leadership knows that something's got to give. It's sort of in this adolescent puppy dog phase of, you know, sort of pretending that they weren't as powerful as they were for a long time. And now sort of realizing like, oh, shit, look what we've done. But there's still not a a tremendous appetite. Look, some companies, I think, want to change. I think the rank and file at Facebook certainly does. I don't think Mark Zuckerberg does. I don't think he cares very much. I really don't. I agree with you um, 1,000%. And I think that that's scary. And I, I think that we absolutely need the government to step in. The problem, I think, that's unique to this era is we are governed by generalists. And if you tuned in to a Senate hearing to watch a sitting United States senator ask, uh, you don't charge your users a fee. How do you make money? Uh, we sell ads, Senator. So there's a fundamental misunderstanding. And that's something as benign as like ad sales on the internet. And, and so when you graduate a few levels up, there is not a clear understanding of what a lot of these companies are doing. And and people are, I, 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 we're just in the, the puppy dog phase, I think, of, re- of regulating it, because it's disrupting the economy, uh, benefits that people get for their jobs. And The government does not understand how to regulate it yet because there's not sufficient expertise, I think.
0: You're listening to Inside
1: the Hive with Nick Bilton. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo. Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence,
0: Jeffrey Hinton,
1: or some of my extraordinarily well informed colleagues at the New Yorker. So join us every week on the New Yorker Radio Hour wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: When you look at what's gonna happen in the next few weeks with these these first caucuses and, and um and the first you know votes coming through, do you do you think that there's a clear potential clear winner, like a Warren or something like that? Or is it just, it's really going to be seat of our pants as we watch? Look, I
1: think I was in Iowa recently, and the strong impression I had was, you know, the reason it is an interesting state, despite not being that diverse, is retail politics on the ground energy still matters, which is cool in its own way. The two people who had that in spades are Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg. And, that was and and to some extent Andrew Yang, he, and there was a tremendous on the ground enthusiasm for him. So I think given that you know any campaign kind of knows like you're, if you have a great field operation, that's good for you know three four five points right beyond what the polls tell you because we've identified our our supporters we know how to turn them out we have a plan of getting them to caucus etc. So I would say that that's going to help Pete and Warren do better than. Uh, the polls say. I think uh, Biden, you know, w- the reason he's so solid in the polls and even ticking up, I think, is is just because that number of undecided voters was so huge. And as that starts to shrink and people make up their minds that, you know, they're kind of breaking for uh, this known quantity and, and this familiar guy. And for all the panic in the establishment about Biden, I mean, he, there's been nothing major, right? Like he, he may not turn in a master class every night, but you know he's got reasonable answers and the things that he wants to do with the country are are progressive and there's none of these top candidates who's not going to be one of the most progressive
0: presidents we've ever had what percentage do you think when people in Iowa and New Hampshire make their decisions what percentage of their decision do you think from being there and kind of meeting people and talking to people is the candidate they want versus the one they believe that can Beat Trump, and in that same regard, does Bloomberg play a role in any of any of these thoughts? I think,
1: for the most part, voters are going to choose somebody who they think can beat Trump because they they've got a gut feeling that four more years of this is not only something we don't want, but it's something that we the country may not be recognizable after. And I think people really do you know it feels sort of silly to remember all the times when we said this is the most important election in our lifetime, you know, in the past 20 years, because this really is it like it could fundamentally change. Like we could have really weird dynastic politics after this, right? Like you could picture um, Donald Trump Jr. running, you know, after his dad or something like it, it really could change or, or it could fundamentally alter where we only can fight back with another celebrity, right? So in four years, we nominate The Rock, which, you know, you could argue about whether that's a good idea, but it would certainly be a departure from what we've been before. I, I think Sanders supporters, many of whom, you know, I've known for a long time. And I, I think the calculus is different. It's, um, our politics is broken. None of this normal. So we are always asked to make a choice between two lousy choices and we've, we've got to kind of break the system. It's, it's got similar characteristics to what, Trump was saying, um, personally. So I, I think that that calculus is different. They just want Sanders, right? It's, it's not whether or not, and they believe of course he can beat Trump. Um, but, but I think that's the, that group of voters is a little different in that way. And Bloomberg. I
0: don't think he's on the radar of a lot of voters. I mean, he's kind of came out. Like I remember when his campaign first came out and uh, my dad lives in Wisconsin and he, um, He reached out, he's like, do you see the Bloomberg ad? And I was like, no, I haven't seen the ad. He he said, oh, it's on TV. He's like, it's great. Yeah. And he's like, you know, we're all talking, everyone's talking about it. It's great. It's a really good ad. And like, I watched it. I was like, wow, it's a really good ad. Like, he's right, you know? Yeah. And, and then, and that was like the last I heard.
1: Well, I think what's really smart about Bloomberg and, you know, who I really like and Steyer, who I think should have not run and should have just, you know, spent his money on helping candidates up and down the ticket, um... What's smart about about them is that they're advertising in the States that they need to win. It's hyper-targeted. It's it's like the Trump campaign, right? And they've got the resources to be able to do this. So uh, if you watched, you know, California is important for the first time in many years in, in this primary season. And if you were watching the impeachment hearings a few weeks back, every single commercial break was a Steyr ad and a Bloomberg ad. So those guys have got the money to compete. They They are doing hyper-targeted stuff. So- I think Bloomberg, you know, if if you talk to his team, I mean, he's kind of openly saying at, at his events, you know, with with, you know, behind closed doors, he's got to sort of pull an inside straight to do this. Right. So I think the calculus that he made was Biden seems to not be able to necessarily put this away. I think the panic has died down a little, but you know bloomberg sort of saying i'll offer myself up in case of emergency break glass so that the party doesn't have to <laughs> nominate you know somebody who's going to lose in 40 states
0: and do you think there's a chance that he might pull through or is it a real long shot at this point there's absolutely a chance i mean the other thing that we don't talk about a lot is is
1: four you know of these leading candidates you know trump and then several of the democrats are really old older And, you know, Bernie Sanders just had a heart attack and obviously he seems to be healthy now and, you know, we all hope he is. And, but he- He'll be 79. Yeah. These are real questions, right? And campaigning is really hard. So I think that that's always an an X factor. I I don't know if you remember, you know, what a big deal Trump made about Hillary's health. Like these are, these are real questions that also, I think that really hurt her, by the way. I mean, there was just that question around it, even though she was completely healthy and remained so- uh, these are real things that have electoral consequences. Bloomberg, I think, in in many ways, the, the messaging, it's almost like a, the naked messaging is, look, billionaires should not be able to buy elections, but we can. And let me do it because I'm going to do a bunch of really great things. And then let's pa- pass campaign finance reform. Let's clean up Gerrymandering and modernize voting and get some ethics laws done. Get these sensible laws that everyone agrees on, right? Um, climate change, gun reform, and even some of the thornier stuff, right? Like a, a centrist could get immigration reform done. Let's get these done and then sort of make sure that a billionaire can no longer buy an election.
0: I think that's an interesting message. So this week there's an impeachment going on and it seems almost like people have like burnout about the whole thing on both sides of the aisle. Um, it's, you know, it's funny. I was, I clicked on earlier in the week, a, a, a New York times news alert where it's like historic impeachment. And I'm just like, well, it's, it's not going to do anything like, you know, or, or is it? So my question, I guess is like, is, will this affect voters opinions in any way shape or form or is this just theatrics that says like that the democrats are not not theatrics i guess but the democrats are saying like look enough's enough we want to make a statement this is the only way we really can we know we're not going to get him impeached because the republicans don't have the goal to Mm -hmm. do it but like even though most of them probably would want to if they had the opportunity but is this going to have any impact on voting or no i think it remains to be seen how it will play
1: out and whether i think any way that trump no matter what it turns out to be trump will say total complete exoneration right and he's his main talent is just hammering home something so long that you know his supporters believe it because he repeats it enough um and he's got People on 24 hour cable news just parroting whatever he says.
0: And vice versa.
1: Yeah, exactly. Again, with the, the virtuous cycle, which, like, you know, Obama didn't have anything like that, right? And, you know, even the liberal coastal elite media were sometimes really hard on the Obama administration and deservedly so. So I think the thing that's different about this is two things. Number one, just the incessant wall to wall coverage that digital life brings with it. So it's not just you read the paper in the morning and you watch the evening news at night and you talk about what's going on in the country. There is full obsession, right? And that is all, not just driven by the phones that we have in our hands all hours of the day, but also by our media diets and the fact that you can just be so curated and tribal that you're only getting people who agree with you. So I think that those two things taken together are what make this feel so different from, let's say, the Clinton impeachment, where it was really a national conversation. Of course, it was hyper-partisan. There was, you know, not to make it sound innocent, but it was different. You know, it was before we, it was you know, obviously the first story ever broken on the internet. And
0: so- I was, remember watching it. I remember being, literally watching a television and, and you know, being glued to it. Whereas with yeah. this, I can barely follow the tweets. Like-
1: Right, because you've sort of been able to glean the relevant facts from just looking at your breaking news alerts and you already know how you feel because news has turned into sports. I mean, if you listen to like the themes music that they play when they're coming <laughs> back from te- television commercial breaks uh, at the debates, yeah. you could you know be forgiven for thinking that it was like a boxing match, right? And the way that it's covered is like that too. So I really think that, the only way out of it. Obviously, we have to have some rules around figuring out um, how to verify factual information. I have real empathy for people who say, you know, is this true or not? Like my dad, who has voted for Democrats and Republicans, will often send me links and say, like, hey, I really don't didn't like this that this politician that you like did, and I'll have to say, like, that's that is actually not true. Like you clicked on that on Facebook click here. This is a news story by journalist, And, you know, he asked legitimate questions like, well, why should I believe that over that? Like people well, have a it, hard time.
0: It's what's, it's so fascinating with digital culture. Like I remember I was at the New York times maybe 10 years ago or so, and maybe a little longer. And it was, uh, and, and Twitter, you know, you, we had just started to get reporters and, um, and the editors on Twitter. And, um, and it, you know, had some impact, but it was usually that a t- it was usually the, the mainstream media covering a tweet rather than tweets going, you know, completely viral. And WikiLeaks had put together a fake news, a fake New York Times. They literally built a fake New York Times and they put an op ed on by Bill Keller, and um, and then they tweeted the op ed from a Bill Keller Twitter account that looked like Bill Keller's Twitter account, and I retweeted it. And I quote mm-hmm. tweeted it and said like – a quote tweets didn't exist. But I tweeted the link and I said smart piece by Bill Keller. It was actually uh, – I, I forget what the piece was. It turned out that the Bill Keller tweet was fake. And it was back when Twitter – when you, you couldn't tell the difference between a number one and an L. And they had done a bill with, a, with two ones mm-hmm. or a one-one. And I fell for it. And I was – I covered Twitter as a journalist. Right. And it's like I can't – and I, this is what frustrates me so much about Facebook is that they say they don't have a responsibility about what people say but they absolutely do like they they could help people understand what is complete bullshit and what is not and maybe what's in between right and they just choose not to
1: well there's real fear i think from the uh, that they have based on how strong that virtuous cycle is on the right right like th- remember when obama just tried to put a public option right and how innocent these times feel Sarah Palin convinced the country that this meant that if your grandma was sick the government would decide if she would live or die the death panels like that's what we're up against I mean I, you could debate the low points of our culture in the past few years but one of them certainly has to be when a guy drove to Washington DC to a pizza parlor because he thought there was Hillary and Obama were operating a child' sex
0: ring and he was gonna in the basement that didn't even have a basement
1: yeah so I mean this is and who you know I don't know anything about that guy but But there are people out there who they don't know what's true and what's false. And so until we fix that, we'll have stuff like this happening. And it's sort of compounded by the fact that we're gerrymandered to death, right? And these things go hand in hand. And so the only way is, you know, this asshole like Kevin McCarthy, who represents the district where I grew up in Central Valley of California – is ever going to lose is to get primaried by an even more psycho Tea Party person, right? Because the, it everything's so gerrymandered. So we can't, until we fix that, people ha- have no incentive to compromise uh, and to, to come together or to even acknowledge reality. Like the fact that, wh- what is Mitt Romney doing in the Senate right now? You know, he just came out today and said that he doesn't really feel the need to support Democrats calling witnesses in the trial of the president. Why did he go to the Senate? You know, it wasn't it to be a check on Trump. And so I I just think they're so strong on the right. They're so coalesced. They're so unified. I mean, the the bigger villain than Trump times 10 is Mitch McConnell. McConnell, And you know, so look, hopefully we could get to a situation where Bloomberg has already said, even if he loses, He's going to keep his staff going. He's going to keep injecting money, donate all of his staff to the eventual nominee. Hopefully, pump in a lot of money to the Senate races and get McConnell out of there because that is
0: the real hostage taker. Do you? Th- I mean, I was listening to him speak today. I was listening to the radio while I was driving to to, to the office, and like I, I wanted to punch my car. Like he is, uh, honestly, just a vile, putrid human being. I don't actually know if he's a human being, but he's violent, and putrid, and he and his state clearly voted to say like they're not. The, but he's the, the lowest rated senator in yeah. the Senate. Uh, Indiana in the last uh, election uh, voted Democrat. Is there a chance that he can get thrown out, or is he just is he just too violent, and putrid, and powerful? Sure, there's a chance. I,
1: I think um, they're going to. I mean, he's got so much. Power and so much funding that it's it's very hard. They've had good candidates run against them in the past, but no, no, there's a, there's absolutely a chance. I think, um, especially if we've got a strong nominee with coattails who's who's really turning out a broad coalition, you know, like Obama did, and he's just seen to be sort of you know, Nancy Pelosi's calling him the Grim Reaper. It, it's you can you can sort of pursue a partisan agenda, but. What he's doing just goes so far beyond, right? It's, it's just so nakedly war, right? You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Hey, John Favreau here. There's
0: no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. I grew up in England, and we have our own issues with with elections there uh where people dress up in costumes and run for office and so on and uh and there's a seems like there's a new parliamentary you know vote every fifteen minutes but but there's nothing quite like the American electoral college, uh, especially in today's day and age, where it just doesn't necessarily make sense. Do you believe that If a Democrat wins, that they can rid this country of that.
1: No, I don't think that we'll be able to do it until we figure out some much more fundamental things. Look, the workaround, the National Popular Vote Compact, um, is an interesting alternative. Explain that. So several states have passed laws that say that their electors from that state Will go to the winner of the national popular vote. So, which would have meant, you know, let's say, I don't think Texas is among them, but let's say Texas had that law, all of their electors in 2016 would have gone for Hillary because she won the popular vote by 3 million votes. Um, the number of states that have passed that, their electoral votes at present, I think, add up to 181. You need 270 to win. So, if we get there, there will, you know, all hell will break loose uh, and it'll go before the Supreme Court. And there may be a question of whether it's constitutional because it's essentially a workaround of the Constitution. But making... You have to change the Constitution to get rid of the Electoral College. And that's extremely hard. Um, you have to have like two-thirds of Congress or three-quarters of the state legislatures.
0: Or, I mean, it's, it's really hard. It, but at some point... I mean, the thing that's so fascinating about this country is 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 that it is predominantly Democrats. And yet, because of gerrymandering, because of this, because of all these things... Because of Electoral College. Because of Electoral College, it is predominantly run by Republicans. And it seems like you solve that problem, you kind of solve a lot of problems. Um, uh, wouldn't that be if if you if you're playing the long game as a democrat as the, you know the people who are running the democratic party wouldn't the long game be like that is our number one priority look i think our number one priority has to be local it has to be state
1: legislatures it has to be national it has to be media like there that is their number one priority it's all of those things um so in, you know not to skirt the question but when in the 8 years obama was president we lost 1000 democratic state legislators a lot of really important policy that affects people's lives happens at the state level. Um, In Los Angeles, um, our LA County jail has 22,000 people in it a day. That's more than twice as big as the town where I grew up. You know, the the DA that represents LA, one of the most progressive cities in the country uh, is an African American woman who's put 22 men of color on death row. She's trying juveniles as adults. So, you know, I think we have to, those types, if if we can get her out and get a progressive DA in, like, that's going to do a lot for quality of life for people. Uh, another example, in Washington State, um, there was a Democratic Assembly and a Democratic Governor, Jay Inslee. They couldn't get anything done because the Washington State Senate had a majority of Republicans by one. So on one day, they're putting, t- they literally put forward a bill to, you know, um, make gay conversion therapy legal and protect that practice. A woman who was a pediatrician ran for an open state Senate seat because she was horrified that they were trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act and the kids she saw she'd no longer be able to see as patients. She ran and won. The majority flipped. They now have they're now able to do progressive legislation like climate change protection and Medicaid expansion. So, you know, everything at at every level matters. Um getting rid of the Electoral College, of course, matters, but you know, I think these things come in, in waves and there's a lot of, the only thing that can be a little bit comforting about the era we're going in before is like, we, we've lived through similar things and it feels really scary because it's our lives now, but, you know, in, in the progressive era at the beginning of the 20th century, they got food safety laws, child labor laws, the 40 hour work week, women's suffrage, yeah, you know, direct election of US senators before that time, you know, corporate tycoons would bribe um, state legislatures to make them U.S. senators, and that's how we we did it. You know, in the 60s, when, you know, there were so many, all of our sort of national leaders were were being gunned down, and there were riots, and it was this scary time when the nation looked like it could be torn apart, we got the Civil Rights Act, and the Voting Rights Act, and the Environmental Protection Agency, and we got Medicare and Medicaid. So I think we are due for something like that. If history is any guide where we can get a lot of, we've got to shore up our democracy. Uh, We've got to figure out how to, you know, let citizens discern fact from fiction. And if we can
0: do that in the next decade, I think, you know, we'll be okay. But you have a worry um, that the the country is at a crossroads, right? That there's like this, you know, that there's this, Moment that we get to decide what happens next, and if we make the wrong decision, that could affect things for a very long time. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll t- talk a little bit about that. Well, I think,
1: I think that we suffer as a country from being brought up with the idea that America is exceptional. Um, you know, if you remember the pilot of uh, was it Newsroom. I, that, that Aaron Sorkin show, where he kind of goes off on saying, like, America's seventh in child mortality. Yeah, mortal. it's great. Yeah. Yeah, it's great because it points out to you that it, by sort of every measure of quality of life, the United States isn't number one. We're not the most free. We don't have the highest life expectancy. We're not the wealthiest. We're not the most educated. Um, our own citizens don't rate our quality of life as higher than other places. So I think that we suffer from that. Um, and yes, we've got to do, we've got to really do something about it. Like if, if we don't clean up the way that we vote, um, the, the only way the right is holding onto power is by keeping people from voting, right? They're making it harder to vote. Uh, secretaries of state in Republican states are, are taking people off the voter rolls whose, whose names are sound like, you know, they're minority voters. It's really insidious and the Koch brothers are, are funding that and others. So we, we need good governance and, and I think there are great organizations like represent us. That's nonpartisan that, um, are advancing this all over the country, just trying to put in ethics laws. They're building partisan, nonpartisan coalitions to just say like, Hey, we can all agree that our state legislators shouldn't be able to take bribes. Um, we can all agree that, you know, voting should be easier. Automatic voter registration. When you turn 18, um, being able to vote at home, uh, simple, basic things that other advanced countries have had for years.
0: One of the candidates that doesn't, you know, get talked about a lot, and I'm guilty of it on the show too, is Andrew Yang. And I think he's probably one of the people who has been thinking the most about the future uh, in a very real way, talking about automation and universal basic income and so on and so forth. Do you think he'll have a impact on if he doesn't win uh that he'll have an impact on whoever ends up going up against trump or and that topic will uh because it seems to me that you know automation is going to be in the next couple of decades is going to be the biggest changing force in in globally that we've ever that we've ever you know seen since the industrial revolution is is that going to be the thing that we're going to be talking about or we is it going to be another one of those We'll talk about it after the fact. I think absolutely we'll be talking about it. And I think there will be
1: a lot more politicians like Yang who have that as part of their, you know, one of the top two or three policy proposals. Um, There are several mayors talking about it. There's, you know, this great young mayor in Stockton, California, Michael Tubbs, who's doing a universal basic income pilot with his citizens where they can sort of see if they're better off or not. Um, But I think, you know something that may be interesting too for your listeners to check out is Richard Nixon came extremely close to signing, uh, to passing universal basic income. I remember when about he this, was yeah. president, and one of his senior staffers sabotaged it. It's a fascinating story, but um, so this is this was something that wasn't necessarily partisan. It was sort of thought of as this could replace the constellation of other social safety net things that we have. Um, there are worries, you know. I, th- I think in the same way that George Bush wanted to privatize social security and and people were worried about that. I think there are worries that, you know, your universal basic income shouldn't um, replace all the other social safety net things. But yeah, I mean, there's not a lot of evidence, you know, a lot of politicians, I think the Democrats really, you know, messed this up over the last 20 years since NAFTA would just say like, oh yeah, there's worker retraining, right? And that doesn't feel good to someone, your job's getting outsourced, but we're going to train you. Like, it's it's scary and there's not a lot of evidence that that works um when it's been studied so yeah we're going to have to do something you know the gig economy isn't working um
0: it's income is working co- for the re- people that run the gig economies and the you know people in silicon valley have made billions of dollars but it's not working for the people who are in, in the in the gig and how long can we expect people to do this like if you really think about what's life like for someone who's
1: an amazon delivery person who or or is an uberx driver and they've got to have another job in a walmart stockroom uh, and they're working t- themselves to the bone to have not a very good quality of life when i meet people and and we know many in LA who have the gall to say to me, if Elizabeth Warren's the nominee, like, I think I'd have to vote for Trump or I don't know who I would vote for. I want to slap them. And it's like, one person is locking people in cages and trampling on the constitution and the other person might eat into your net jets budget. And how dare you? Uh, So I, I think people who are really benefiting from this economy, who are few and far between, don't understand how dangerous the moment we're in is with the income inequality that we've got which is worse than pre-revolution france when they solved it with guillotines and people who are just going about their day thinking that we're going to be okay have got another thing coming there will be a
0: breaking point when enough people are like fuck this i'm not doing this anymore yeah no completely agree and i think that it's the breaking point will be when 30 million Americans or 50 million Americans lose their jobs and there's nothing there waiting for them on the other side. And the Republicans who can't give people free health care because whatever bullshit reason they come up with won't give them the money to to, to live. Yeah. Um, and and you're seeing – I mean you're seeing little – I think you're seeing the beginnings of it now honestly. I think if you you know, go to Los Angeles to San Francisco – Specifically, places in California where the weather allows for it, homelessness is on a rise. You know, in LA, it's it's insane how 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 bad it's become, and it's because that you're seeing gentrification and and the city wasn't designed for this experience that was going to happen to where where um, there would be there's no housing for people that can't afford it. Mm-hmm. Um, it happened in San Francisco when I lived there. Where I remember in San Francisco when I was there. A few years ago, it got to a point where there was a, a study that came out that said there is not a single teacher, firefighter, or police officer in San Francisco that can afford to buy or live in a house in the in, the, and they all have to live outside. Yeah, that's a problem. Yeah, and uh, and I think that you're gonna, st- I think you're gonna start to see the beginnings of that.
1: Yeah, it's like Gotham. I mean, yeah. I think you know, it's no wonder jo- the Joker resonated so strongly. It, you know, this past summer when it came out. But, you know, one of the things I'll mention that somebody who I do think deserves a lot of credit is is Mayor Pete for how he's talking about the crisis of belonging, which feels like such a soft thing to say. But I've, you know, when I've seen him, you see people nodding their heads in the crowd, right? And, and the way that he talks about faith, I think the Democrats have needlessly lost this argument. They, they've let the Republicans co-opt that
0: Faith arguments so completely. Trump isn't a religious man. Yeah, I mean, we had, there's nothing I, I, about him that's religious. No, there's, not, the, the, there's w- that one clip that I sent to someone. Um, uh, I've sent to a bunch of people of him, of his, he before he became president. He was um, he was asked on I don't know some Fox show like. You know, do you read the Bible? He says, "Oh yeah, I read it all the time." And he's like, "What's your favorite part in the Bible? What's your favorite verse?" I love them all equally, he says. Yeah. And then, and then he, and then he says, "You a first testament guy or second testament guy?" Ah, like them both. I like yeah, them both. Yeah. And it's like, give me a fucking break! <laughs> like, you don't even know. You wouldn't know Isn't a Bible if it new. hit you in the face. What's yeah. that? Is it first and second or old and new? Old and new. I forget. <laughs> yeah, that's right. See, it shows my my yeah. understanding of the Bible. You but know still, more than like, Trump stuff uh uh first and second edition uh <laughs> but but the point is it is so obvious that he is not and yet you're right i remember I, we had marion williamson on the show and mm-hmm. she said and i think she had a really like strong point to make what she said um you know it, that the republicans have co-opted religion and uh, and she predicted this many many years ago and a, a story i read about 20 years ago about mm-hmm. her and and that like if the democrats the democrats need to be more accepting of people who are religious well look i grew up in a town of eight thousand people, people 100 miles from
1: here but a world away an oil town at the bottom of the the central valley in california and i've never you know the, the people i grew up with you know went into the military or they went to work in the oil fields like it's a different world and i've never really heard from them when i've you know, done an event for Hillary Clinton or Obama or someone else. But I do hear from them saying, you know, like, I I like how Mayor Pete talks about his faith. I like that he served in the military. I I think one of the interesting things that, you know, a grad student will write a thesis about a few years from now is um, I'm very curious why the left in sort of like the Twitter sphere hates Mayor Pete so much. You know, he's, he, it's very interesting to me and he's a progressive candidate who's sort of resonating with the kind of voters we may need to win back, uh, to win the electoral college. And I, I just find that, I think it's really interesting.
0: My theory is that, um, is that it's almost like kind of too good to be true. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I also think that, you know, McKinsey has gotten a very bad, a deservedly very bad rep lately and he's tied to that and, um, Uh, but I think a lot of it's like too good to be true and something, something is not right. If it's, it's like that old saying of like, you know, if it's like, if it's too good to be true, it's probably, probably is. And like, so I think there's some, there's some skepticism there. All right. Last couple of questions for you. Um, when you look forward to the, you know, the main event, if you want to call it that, (laughs) the Democrat versus the Republican, uh, do you think that there's any world where the Republicans are like, "Hey, we should maybe kind of stand up to trump and um and you and I've talked about this a little bit, but like where someone like a Romney or somebody like that comes along and and you know really tries to take him on and gives people the option uh of of having another Republican they can vote for or is or is Trump just too strong no." It's it's Trump and it's McConnell and I think look the
1: only thing I could see is is if we nominate uh, Warren or Klobuchar maybe I could see Trump trying to get Tulsi Gabbard to replace Mike Pence and saying you know I've got a unity ticket and who knows what that would do or you know or, or Nikki Haley or someone we'll we'll see if that happens but I think that that would be he where he's really losing ground in the way that would concern his campaign is with suburban women. Um, and, and with women in general who voted for him last time, I mean, Trump won college educated white women in 2016, uh, which still I find to be one of the more shocking things that happened that night. Uh, but no, I, I don't think there's any indication there's no one in the Senate who is even people who don't really have a lot to lose. I mean, Susan Collins has got a really tough fight in Maine against a well-funded, um, woman who I think is the speaker of the state assembly, like you know, she could lose, and one way that she could really help herself probably is by coming out against Trump. I mean, you see Lisa Murkowski from Alaska saying some of the right things, but the fact that Mitt Romney, with with the stature that he has, who really has nothing to lose in a very safe seat in Utah, not up for reelection for like four more years, isn't saying we got to get this guy out. Like, I don't think. I, I truly don't think there is anything that could come out that would change the calculus.
0: Oh, I, I completely agree. He could, he could, Trump could literally have a pedophilia ring under the White House and in a dungeon, and like it wouldn't matter. And there was, if it's just, there's nothing that could happen. Or you know, Melania could say, you know,
1: he's, you know, he he hit me. You know, the the long rumored. Strangling video in the elevator of Trump Tower could come out, and there would be something. Kellyanne Conway would would be saying
0: he's a champion of women.
1: Yeah, (laughs) he's fighting for paid family leave with Ivanka.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, Last two questions, uh, very quickly. Do you think he wins? No, you don't. No, I I don't think he's going to win. I think,
1: I think uh, we'll win back Pennsylvania and Michigan. Think Wisconsin, it will be razor thin and close. But I think we could all, we have a really good shot of winning Arizona. One of the best Senate candidates in a long time, Mark Kelly, whose wife is the former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords, who was um, shot in the head at a, at a at a congressional event. They're you know a phenomenal couple, and he's I think has a really good chance of winning that Senate race and bringing new voters in. And there's a lot of passion from just everyday Americans who you know, are are flying to other states to register new voters. Like there, there is some really great organization that's happening. So yeah, it comes down to the electoral college. We, you know, he can win Florida. He can win Ohio. He can win all these, you know, states that he won last time. But if we get Pennsylvania and Michigan back and we pick up a state like Arizona, you know, maybe we win Wisconsin, like that's enough.
0: And if he doesn't win, do you think that George... Conway and Kelly and Conway get divorced and we finally find out they hate each other or is this all one big giant act? I mean, what
1: I think would be less surprising would be to find out that like George Conway is on the Trump payroll and that Trump like, you know, was paying him because it like <laughs> for some reason keeps,
0: you know, he he likes the fight. Uh, it's so it's so so terrible to watch. Jordan, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, are, you, do you, are you tweeting these days about any of this stuff? Or are you just kind of staying quiet? Okay, yeah. well, uh, it's been really great. Uh, Thanks for to having you. me. I, I hope that you are right about most of the things you said today. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Of course. Thanks to my guest this week, Jordan Brown. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure and listen to subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the High with Nick Bilton. That's me. You can find these on ApplePodcastRadio.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. Don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thank you, of course, to my sponsors this week, Sleep Number and the agency. Please support them the same way you support this fantastic podcast. I will see you all next week. Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about.